0: Well, I don't want him embarrassed, but I've got my own natural son that's just arrived. So. <laughs> um, could you just stand?
1: Um, yeah.
0: and Claire, his precious wife. Thank you. Um, bless you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Do you want to say anything? Thank you. Well, we had Mark Karayuki Cario- Mark erroneously claiming to be my eldest. <laughs> but, but this is the firstborn. He has the- But but pray for them, they're they're here. Do you mind if I say why you're here? Um, They're seriously weighing whether God's calling them to come and join me in in America and serve me in this ministry. So this is a a strategic week for them. I'm I'm excited, but I'm trying not to influence them (laughs) in a wrong way. So pray that they will clearly and certainly know what God is saying to them, amen? Well, let's go to the notes. And I want to spend a little more time because I feel if we grasp these things, then I think then in reality, we can then move into the next phase of the kingdom. I think we've already sensed that to be like Jesus on earth, while that gives us a measure of power, it leaves us in a a conflict where we do not see the resolution that we're crying out for. And just as Jesus was not satisfied, uh, he doesn't want us to be satisfied either. But I want to just add a few more things. I want to spend a little bit of time just comprehending the power of his resurrection. And then I want us to understand why that's so important for us. It's not enough to have a theological belief—it's got to become manifested life in us. That was the cry of the apostle Paul when he wrote to the Ephesian church. He said, "Now my, he said, as, as an apostle, I'm on my knees before God, praying that the eyes God will give you a spirit of revelation and understanding. That the eyes of your eyes might be opened, and you might see this." And I'm praying that. I mean, I know mysteries that I'm trying to convey to you have finally got to be seen spiritually. I thank God for the. way he enabled us in the first session and I I think he's very eager that we should get this with absolute clarity. So if you come on with your notes I want to just deal with one or two things here. Um, I think we've understood that Jesus as the last Adam and you might like to just note or turn to it if you wish 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 45 through 47 and there we have certain statements made which, and I want us to be careful not to confuse them. I sometimes hear Jesus being spoken of, for example, as the second Adam. Now, he's not the second Adam. He's called the second man. What he's called here is the last Adam because what happened here in these few verses, Paul is capturing the conclusion of one thing and the beginning of something new. And what we've got to understand is that the Jesus that rose from the dead was so incredibly, amazingly wonderful and powerful because it wasn't the same Jesus as the one that died. Now there's mystery here and there are things that we are left uh, not having them fully explained to us because probably there's no way the Spirit of God can. But I know in my spirit things that I can't articulate in words. But... There's little details which give a hint of this. For example, when John ran into the tomb on that resurrection morning, one of the things he noticed was that there were the grave cloths lying there with the headband just as if they'd never been disturbed. And the conclusion you're left with was that there wasn't a physical body that rose, but it was just the body that was laid in the tomb just disappeared, literally evaporated into nothing, passed like... So it wasn't like Lazarus coming out the grave. He came out with the glaive crow still attached to him. What happened here was that the, 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 the wrappings of that body were still undisturbed. And someone who had never lain in physical death in that tomb walked, we don't even know whether he did, but he came out from the tomb, the stone was rolled back, and the only... Actual eyewitness to his resurrection were angels. Amen. They said he's not dead, but he's risen. And there's a mystery here, which is with the apostle Paul, probably more than anybody, saw into this, and he saw the implication of it. And we've got to understand these things. But before we we get to that, we perhaps need to deal with one or two more things that were accomplished. And I've in in. Page 34 and D, I just want to expand this more than I've said in the notes. I felt as I was praying this morning, God said, I've got to make this absolutely clear. And I put here that the cross also meant the downfall of Satan because of the man who came forth from the grave. And we go to John 12, 23 to 26, where Jesus said, now the prince of this world has been judged. Speaking, of course, about Calvary, Satan was judged at Calvary. And he was finished at Calvary. Amen? That's why when Jesus told his disciples that they were going to go forth in the power of the Spirit, he said, you're going to convince the world of judgment. And uh, in verse 8, you will convince the world of judgment. But verse 11 of John 16 tells us what that judgment is. It wasn't the judgment at the end of the age, which is, again, erroneously taught. If you go to verse 11, it tells us what the judgment is we'll be able to convince the world that the prince of this world has already been judged. Whereas we're going to show them that the devil no longer has any power against those who are now with Jesus in the kingdom, which is no longer confined to this earth. We're going to show them that he's judged. And that any principality or power of Satan's kingdom is totally unable to withstand those who have moved to this level of the kingdom where they're now not bound to the authority of earth, but they're bound to the authority of heaven and of earth. Okay? It's a different level altogether. And so um, I want to just spend a few minutes on a great theme of scripture which is called uh, the Kinsman Redeemer. And I'm going to skim over it very, very quickly and like I did over the, you know, the different tenses. I hope to do it in five minutes or ten minutes. But if you go to Leviticus 25, you can make the notes here, you'll find that in Leviticus 25 the rules are given for the way in which a slave is redeemed from his slavery. You'll find that also the rules are given as to how land is recovered when it's been sold through debt. So if the Lord says the land is mine but I've given it to you as a temporary stewardship. Now if through poverty or debt you are robbed of your inheritance then here is the way that it's always available to get it back. No one can permanently have that which is your inheritance. Amen? No one can permanently keep you as a slave. And the way that it's Rectify was that someone, perhaps we better just turn there for a moment. You'd come to Leviticus 25. I want you to see the spiritual implication of all this. All these things are written for our instruction. Amen. On whom the angels you come. Le- Leviticus 25, and it says, um, verse... 23. The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. Verse 25. If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold his possession, if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. Or if the man has no one to redeem it, he may redeem it himself. Okay, now come over the page to, ver- well, in my Bible, come to verse 47. Now, if a sojourner or a stranger close to you becomes rich and one of you brethren who dwell by him become poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner close to him verse 48 after he's sold he may be redeemed again one of his brothers may redeem him or his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him or anyone who is near of kin to him in his family may redeem him or he himself may be able to redeem himself and the principle here is that that you cannot permanently become a slave even though as a debt, as, as a debtor, you become a slave through debt. You cannot permanently lose your inheritance. What's required is that someone who is a blood relative, a kinsman, so there has to be the relationship of a kinsman, and secondly, at the time of the debt or the time of the slavery, a redemption document has to be written, which wrote down the terms and conditions of redemption. And providing the relative can come and pay the redemption price, that person who's got them in slavery, or that person who's taken over their inheritance, has to hand it back to the family. The family can always buy it back, providing they are a blood relative, and providing they can pay the redemption price. Now, can you see how that's working in Jesus? Because he became our relative by baptism. He became part of Adam's family. So he's earned the right of redemption in terms of, of his relationship. Now he's got to also now pay the price of redemption. Now it comes along beautifully. You'll find, um, come to, I mean, come to Jeremiah chapter 32 and some more details are given to us there. And you, you, in fact you need to ponder this and study it at some other time but we'll just look at it very briefly. Come to... I, to Jeremiah, at the time of great trouble when everything's going wrong, and you come to Jeremiah 32, from God's beginning to speak a tremendous message of hope. And he tells, the Lord tells Jeremiah to go and buy land and a time when everybody's running for cover. Okay. And so it says in verse 10, I signed the deed. Now the word for deed is the word book or scroll. I signed the deed and sealed it. So we have a sealed scroll, which is, if you like, the title deed to this land. And and I, I weighed out the money on scales and I purchased the... And I took the purchase scroll that was sealed according to the law and custom and that which was open. So there was a sealed copy and there was an open copy. And what happened was in in Jeremiah's case, he caused them to be buried in the ground in a pot so they would last a long time. Because one day God's coming to redeem this whole land. And he's sort of picturing the redemption. Now in their case it was going to be 70 years but there's a principle here which God wants us to understand because it's really just a picture of the whole earth. You see, Jesus not only dealt with the sin of Adam's race, he dealt with the loss of the inheritance of the whole earth. By Adam's disobedience and sin, he went into debt to Satan. Satan not only took all mankind prisoner and made them slaves, but he also took over complete rule and government of the earth. And it felt like it was a temporary legal entitlement that he had because of the disobedience and sin of Adam. So he became, the. sometimes people talk about Satan as the usurper. Well, in a way that's true, but in a way it's not true. Until it's dealt with legally, he had a legal right to walk around this earth as if he owned it. And the reason was because of man's failure, because of man's sin. Man lost his inheritance by his sin and it fell into the hands of Satan. All right? And so when that situation obtained, then documents were prepared. And you're going to see how this all builds up to a glorious climax. And... At the time of the loss of the land, the document contained the redemption price. Two copies were made. One was sealed and sealed with seals, seven seals. And the other one was open so it could be read and it was left in the hands of the, the judge and the one who had judgmental authority over that region. And if someone could come along, number one, prove their, their, their relationship to the person that had lost their inheritance by and secondly could pay the redemption price, they could take back that possession and the person that had now occupied it legally had to give it up because the relative had a prior claim upon it. Have you got the picture? Now you come to the book of of Ruth and we see how in in the wonderful picture of Boaz and Naomi and Ruth, we got a tremendous picture because Boaz is such a glorious example of Christ. I'm sure you understand that, don't you? And you understand that Ruth is a picture of the church. Do we understand that? And so in this great story of Ruth coming back from her um, with her mother-in-law Naomi and, and, and laying herself at the feet of Boaz, she's claiming the kinsman relationship, which was absolutely real. And he's delighted to have her as his bride, and that's a wonderful picture. You see, when you're baptised in water, you are what? You're baptised into Christ, and by baptism into Christ, you've become a, a family member. See, see, baptism is, is many things, but one of the things it is, is it's a marriage service. God said to Jesus, will you have fallen, sin-ridden Humanity, will you take Adam's race and will you marry him for all eternity and will you take him out of his degradation and, his de- and once again present him without spot and wrinkle gloriously as, as, as your eternal bride and he said oh father I will and then when you and I stand on the day that we're baptised what we're basically being asked is will you have Jesus to be your lawfully headed wedded husband and will you accept him As your husband, and will you live as his bride? And what we're saying is, Lord, I will. That's the other half of the marriage ceremony. Okay? So by baptism, we are immersed into our new genealogies. Jesus was immersed into Adam by baptism, became part of that sin cursed genealogy. But in the same way, by baptism, you and I are immersed into Christ and become part of his glorious genealogy, so that we actually become family members. And and so the picture of Boaz and Ruth is a glorious picture of this. And the first thing that uh, Boaz did when he accepted her as his bride, it says in the book of Ruth that he measured out to her six measures of barley. Now barley, which I won't go into in any detail, barley is the great harvest which coincided with the Feast of Pentecost. Barley harvest was the feast of Pentecost and they came back in the time of barley harvest and and Boaz takes this enormous mountain of barley and he measures out to her six measures of barley and if you calculate how much that is, it's enough to bury her. She's been going around the edges of the field, gleaning enough barley just to live by it. She's been living like a beggar on just getting just enough barley to live till the next day. And many, many people, they seek the Holy Spirit to have just enough of the Holy Spirit to survive until tomorrow and they live like beggars. And God doesn't want a bride that's living on beggar supplies of the Holy Spirit. So when you become his bride and he gathers you to himself, he says, come here, dear. Here's the first thing I want to do for you. I want to deluge you with the Holy Ghost. Pour out six measures of barley. Go on. And she's buried. In in fact, one of the the medieval commentators, because I think it works out, at 120 kilos. And he says, he says, Ruth must have had special grace to carry it home. (laughs) 120 kilos, in case you can't work it out, is about 250 pounds. And he he buried her in barley. And that's the kind of bride he wants, someone who's deluged with the Holy Spirit. But if you come to to the book of Ruth, which, as you know, is just before 1 Samuel, Joshua judges Ruth Samuel, you'll find that Boaz, in verse 4, goes up to the gate where all the elders sit. And he wants to settle legally his right. But there is a closer relative than Boaz. And I want you to see this closer relative is the law. Hello. You get this from Romans chapter 4. Because if you're married to the law, you've got to die to that husband before you can be married to Christ. Amen. But there's no free widowhood here. You're either married to the law or you're married to Christ. Amen? Have you got the picture? And if you, if you leave that old husband, the law, says Paul, and are married to your new husband, Christ, and just live in a love relationship, he said, you're going to produce all this fantastic fruit. And this is what's being pictured here, because he goes to the gate, and here is this other relative, and he says, I can't redeem her, which is absolutely true. You can't be redeemed by the works of the law. So, this is, so he says, well, then, then you redeem her. Uh, uh, verse 6, I cannot redeem it for myself lest my, I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my, you, my right of redemption for yourself for I cannot redeem it. And then Boaz takes this before he says, right, I want all of you to witness I'm marrying Ruth, the Moabitess. And I'm taking the property of Naomi and then he pays the redemption price. Now this is all this picture of the kinsman redeemer. Have you got the picture? Yeah. All right, now let's move into the book of Revelation and you'll see how this comes to glorious conclusion. Come to Revelation chapter 5. Now, the scroll is the sealed redemption price for the earth. And here is, the, here is John watching this scene. He says, I, verse 1, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and outside and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel came with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven could be found because, of course, you could not be a blood relative if you were from heaven. No one from heaven could be found, and no one on earth could be found because no one on earth themselves was free from debt and had the resources to pay the redemption price. In heaven they didn't have the relationship, and on earth they didn't have the didn't have the redemption price. So we're totally stuck. And then the angel says, Don't weep anymore. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah and of the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. In other words, God's found a man who can pay the price. Yeah. Hallelujah. Yeah. He qualifies in terms of relationship and because of his 30 years of perfect obedience, the power of that allows him now to buy back from the devil all of physical creation. So the cross doesn't simply deal with the sin of adam it deals with the who owns the world yes. have you got that yeah. have you got it yeah. so the moment jesus had completed this marvelous transaction he could go to the devil and say devil you get off my world Amen. and i and my relatives of this new family, we are now joint owners of everything and you're just now, you're, you're, you're finished. Your legal hold upon the earth is finished. There's not a vestige of this world that belongs to you anymore because I've paid for it. Wow. Thou art worthy. And then, I mean, I don't know if, but why it said don't weep and I looked and behold in the midst of the throne and, and of the four living creatures stood a lamb as though he'd been slain. That's what qualified him to pay as though he'd been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which is, they speak of total power and total um, knowledge, all seeing eyes. The horn of scripture is is a symbol of power, government, authority. It's perfect government, it's perfect knowledge. This is who he is. If you get in the picture, he's coming not simply to save man from his sins, he's coming to take over the whole of the world and say, right, this is mine now. And there's there's not a street in San Francisco or Los Angeles yes. or Washington DC yes. that is devil's territory anymore it all belongs to Jesus oh, come on yes. Yes. the sex shops of Bangkok yes. belong to Jesus yes. the fanatical Muslim stronghold of Af- Afghanistan belongs to Jesus yes. the Buddhist amen We're not just going to bomb the place out of it. We're going to see it transformed. until It bows the knee to Jesus. The Hindu kingdom of Nepal, it all belongs to Jesus. The Buddhist stronghold of Tibet, it belongs to Jesus. Amen. It's all his. He's paid for it by his blood. He's got an undisputed legal title deed. And when they see this, it says, he came, verse 7, and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures in the twenty-four just fell down amid, before the Lamb, each having a harp full of incense and, and the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. Here's the new song. You are worthy to take the book and to open its seals, for you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, and tongue, and people, and nation, and you've made us to be, literally, you've made us to be a kingdom, is the correct translation, you've made us to be a kingdom, and a priesthood to our God, and we shall reign on the earth, hallelujah. Now that's the picture, I've done that very quickly, does that make sense to you? So the cross not only deals with the sin of Adam, it deals with the ownership of the world. He's got a double right to the earth. He's the creator and he's brought it back with his blood. Amen. It was temporarily lost into the hands of Satan by the sin of Adam, but it's been gloriously, eternally, and completely bought back out of the devil's hands by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the devil has no right to put his dirty fingers or his dirty feet on one particle of this whole world because it's already paid for. And when they saw that in heaven, they sang a new song. And I tell you, much of the church needs to see that and sing that new song. Amen. So what we're doing is we're now, because of the cross, we're now dealing with someone who has no more legal right, power or authority to any particle of this earth. Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. And the man this is E, who arose was different to the man who died. This is the power of the resurrection. He rose a totally new man. He arose as the law from heaven, who was never connected to Adam's race. You've got to see this, that the risen Christ was a totally new man. But it wasn't the body of Jesus coming to life and walking out of the tomb. That sin cursed. body of the Lord Jesus, which became the, the, the trash can, the receptacle for all the filth of Adam's race, and it went in concentrated form into his body, and then he took it down into the depths of hell and into the, to the very depths of death, and there he left it, and that never rose again from the dead. Now to comprehend this, you've got to understand something else, which I, I feel I need to spend a little time on. I want you to come to three scriptures. Come to First John. When we'll all be dancing in the aisles when we get this. <laughs> I still dance. It's, uh, come to 1 John chapter 5. See, we've got to understand, by this we really understand the nature of the new birth and why the new birth and the kingdom are so joined together. And we have John in his letter makes quite a few statements, and he uses this statement, whoever is born of God overcomes the world. Whoever is born of God does not go on habitually sinning. Whoever is born of God loves the brethren. And and you see this incredible, this is what the characteristics of the new birth are. And here we have one in verse 4, for whatever, so if you don't even feel human, Providing you're born of God. And can you see how he could be talking about the kingdom here? Because it's neuter. It's not masculine. But I probably prefer to believe. I mean, I'm still meditating some of these things. But I'm prepared to let myself think free in order to get new revelation from God and check it and check it and check it against the scriptures. I'm an experimental thinker, but I'm a careful thinker. And I'm always weighing it against every scripture to make sure I'm not going off into error. But we could just say, okay, well, whatever's born of God. Okay, you feel so bad that you don't even feel human. When if you're born of God, you overcome the world. And notice what it says. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. How did Jesus rise from the dead? By the glory of the Father, but also by the power of his own faith. Amen? He obtained his resurrection by faith. And we have to come to that same resurrection life by the same activity. It's by an attitude, an activity of faith. But we're to come down to verse 6, and it says, This is he. This is talking about this risen, glorious one. This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is true. Now hold that in your heart, and come with me now to John chapter 19. And see how all these come together. John chapter 19. And here, John is describing... The last moments of Jesus as he hung upon the cross. It says in verse 28 that Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished and that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. And they gave him vine- vinegar. And then it says, when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, It's finished. And that's a battle cry of a, of a gladiator in the winning thrust in a conquest. He's saying, It's finished. Or the word teleos has the idea of having a debt which is now totally discharged. You could say, nothing to pay. It's paid for. It's finished. And having completed the payment of Adam's sin on the cross, it says he bowed his head and dismissed his spirit. And I think I said it yesterday when that Roman centurion saw the way that he died. He got on his knees and said, this this is truly the Son of God. He'd never seen anyone before in charge of their own execution, choosing the appropriate moment to give up their life. But then a soldier comes, and we read that when they came to Jesus, verse 33, and saw that he was already dead. He did not break his legs. That's very significant, but I won't go into that right now. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water gushed out. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he's telling the truth that you may believe. In other words, he's saying, I stood there at the cross and I saw this soldier do this. I saw the blood and water gush out. And the spirit said to me, John, that's very important. Notice it. At the time, I didn't comprehend what it was but later God showed me what it was. By the time he writes the first letter to John, he knows what this means. because you, you see, what's happening is this. That Jesus is not only... Perhaps we'll go to one more scripture before I say that. Come with me to John chapter 16. Come to John chapter 16. Jesus is talking to his disciples. And this is what he says. Verse 20. Most assuredly I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. A woman, when she's in labour, has sorrow because of her hour has come, but as soon as she's given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for for joy, and this is the literal translation, for joy that a man-child has been born into the world. In other words, it's a full-grown man that comes out of the womb. He said, now you're going to be full of sorrow, but he said, what I want you to understand is that as I go to the cross, not only am I the Lamb of God paying for the sins of Adam's race, but he said, I'm going to do something else. When that's finished, I'm going to be like a mother that goes into travail. And I'm going to start to give birth to something. And what I'm going to give birth to is a whole new man that owes nothing to Adam's race, never was part of Adam, never has disobeyed God, and he's he's going to be a glorious new man, which we're told in 1 Corinthians 15 is the Lord from heaven. And he won't come forth this time as a little helpless babe needing to be fed by Mary every three hours but he'll come forth from the womb or if you like from the tomb as an already fully grown mature man armed for war and ready to take the kingdom and the whole world back out of the devil's hand and fill it with his glory and fill it with his kingdom. He said, now when this is going on, he said, you're not going to understand He said, but I tell you, when I come forth from that tomb, your sorrow is going to be turned to joy. So can you see the picture here? When that soldier ripped open the side of Jesus, he didn't know what he was doing, but he was, prepared, he was, he was performing a caesarean on the very womb of God. And the first elements of birth are the breaking of the waters, when the blood and the water gushes out. It was the beginning of labour. They carried this labouring woman, if you like, into the tomb. And there, in that death, there was something phenomenal happening in the spirit realm. There was a mighty travail of Jesus, like a mother, giving birth to something entirely and gloriously new. And on the the day of the third morning, ah, this glorious one came forth. And if you can understand this, the risen Lord Jesus was the first fruit of his own womb. He was the mother giving birth to a whole new genealogy of men and women who never were under the bondage of Satan, never will be. And these ones not only have authority on earth, they have authority in heaven. Amen? They're risen and ascended with him. Do you comprehend that? Now, we could go to a lot of scriptures, but let's just turn to a few quickly. Come to Colossians chapter 1, for example. Well, let's stop in Romans. Come to Romans chapter 8. Come to verse 29. For whom he first foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, that he might be the firstborn, the first begotten from the dead among many brethren. Amen? Amen. Come to... Colossians chapter 1. And come to verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him and through him all things were created in heaven that are on earth, etc., etc., etc. All power, thrones, authority, dominions, principalities, and powers, all these were created through him and for him. He's before him, and through him all things consist. Verse 18. He's the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning? The firstborn, the first-begotten from the dead. <coughs> Come to the book of Revelation. Not fully. It's coming. It's coming. Verse 6. What should we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may amount? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? What you were in that Adamic nature, sin. But what you are in the risen Christ doesn't sin. That which is born of God cannot sin. Now let me just maybe explain something here. You can violate your nature temporarily. Did I explain that here or someplace else? Yes, yes. yes, the other day. So I won't go into all that again. I'm just getting a bit confused about what I said where. So I explained to you how, how as a newborn creature in Christ, I can temporarily lie, but I'm so uncomfortable I can't live with it. My inner man can't live with it, so I've got to get it all out and get it cleansed. Whereas before I was re- regenerated, I could sin and it didn't even bother me because that's my nature. Yeah. To be a liar is my nature in Adam, but to be a liar in Christ is impossible. It's a violation of my new nature. Amen? I can't live in that because I've got a new nature, which does not sin. If I'm temporarily overwhelmed by circumstances, I quickly have to deal with them and get back to who I really am, which is someone like the Lord Jesus that cannot sin cannot lie. That's the power, the glorious power of the resurrection. If we've been united with him in a death like his, it says in verse 5, certain, I love the Greek translation here and I think English translation is miserable. It puts lots of words in that we don't need in italics. Cross them out, because it's stark in the Greek. It says this, If we have been united with him in a death like his, certainly also we are his resurrection. And I want to tell you that I believe that. I am his resurrection. So the process which is described, for example in Ephesians, is that I I was buried with Christ. I went down... And I, I, you know that old song, were you there when they crucified my Lord? I, I said, yeah, I was there. When Jesus hung on the cross, I was in his loins, participating with him. When, I, when Jesus went down into the depths of hell and depths of death, I was in his loins participating with him. And then when he was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, I, by grace, was participating with him in his glorious risen life. When he came forth from the tomb as this glorious full-grown, mature man that strode out of the tomb to become the Lord of heaven and of earth. I was in his loins when he made this declaration. I was in his loins when he went went through the heavens and came to the very throne of God. Hallelujah. And I'm in his loins as he sits upon that throne. Now, when you see this, the kingdom moves into a totally different realm. Because we're not dealing with demons at the earth level and having some victories and some failures. It's not a sort of equal context. It's a totally unequal contest. Because we've now gone to the highest... Heavens, way beyond the lower levels where the demonic powers are exercising their strategic rule upon the earth because from those heavenly places which we read about in Ephesians chapter 6 where they sit in these places of spiritual rule and spiritual authority and ex- exercise their foul influence upon earth so everything on earth is, is seen for, and they, they open fire on anything who's trying to exalt the kingdom upon earth so we've got to go higher than them, and from that higher place, we crush them. Cast them off their thrones, And then we occupy the gates which they formerly occupied. And then instead of the atmosphere of our cities being, us fighting to bring the kingdom in, and an atmosphere of hell, we're now, fight, we're now gloriously fighting to bring the kingdom in with an atmosphere of the rule and power of heaven, with the demons cast down and powerless. Now we see the next phase of the kingdom. The moment that Jesus is risen from the dead and for 40 days he spends his time instructing his disciples concerning the kingdom of God. Saying, look guys, what you did before on earth, that's not to be compared to what you're going to do now. We're moving from an earthly battle to a heavenly ruling supremacy and from those heavenly vantage points you can take every demon out that's opposing the advance of the kingdom. It's going to be a very different ballgame. So what you've got to learn, you've got to learn how to rule in the heavenlies and from those heavenly vantage points, from the very throne of God, you send these powerful demon principality destroying missiles and you say, get out! (laughs) And here's... Here's this demonic stronghold that's been there for four, five, six thousand years. And one word from you, from the throne, it's like a mighty missile that hits its target, psh, knocks it off its throne. And the devil has lost the power of his throne. Amen? Now, that's what happened when the church went, because after 40 days of instructing them in how they were to now function at a totally different level in the kingdom. They were now to move from earthly context and contest into heavenly context and contest. They were going to now, from the heavenly, they were going to rule over the demonic powers and cast them out in a way that was never before possible. And when those great demonic principalities are taken out, I tell you, the demons running around on earth like a bunch of cockroaches, when their power has been taken from them, they are they're a pushover. They'll flee. They won't even stay to fight. But we've got to take that heavenly realm. And we get there by the activity of faith. So Jesus instructed them for 40 days. He didn't talk about anything, it seems, except the kingdom of God. He said, look, you guys, you've got to get this right now. You stay in that other room. Don't go anywhere until you know, oh, you've heard me teach on this wonderful Greek word, kathizo. If not, please get the tape. It's there, you can get it, because it's such an important truth. What did Jesus mean when he said, wait or tarry in Jerusalem till you're clothed upon the tower? He said, now, what I want you to do is I want you to learn to, to be seated comfortably on my throne as if you know you have every right to belong there, as if you know this is where you now permanently reside, and from that throne, you're going to start to exercise the, the new yeah. heavenly authority of the kingdom. Yeah. While Jesus was on earth, it was the earthly authority of the kingdom. It was pretty powerful. And it did some tremendous things, but it never at that level dislodged the demonic principalities. That's why at the end of three and a half years of the ministry of Jesus, he only had a church of 120. And the demonic powers still ruled the city of Jerusalem. And the demonic powers were able to stir up the opposition which crucified Jesus. But they didn't know they were actually stirring up the opposition to their own destruction. Because that very crucifixion was going to destroy them, but they couldn't see that. Paul said if they had known what it was going to do, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't know what they were doing. God had complete control of everything all the time. And that's true of the United States of America right now. No one's going to push any buttons or do anything that God isn't sovereignly ruling over. And so they went into that upper room, just 120 of them. That's all that really... Were, were as Jesus' disciples enough to obey him and that's what the kingdom is no one else you see was in the kingdom they might come to the healing meetings 20,000 of them came they might come to a wonderful men's free breakfast 5,000 men came but that doesn't mean they're in the kingdom 120 said yes Lord and went into the upper room and stayed there until they were clothed upon with power but it was enough and from that throne room, I'm going to call it, of the upper room, that upper room became the throne room. And from the throne room, they threw down principalities and powers, and we see for the first time what happens to a city when this is done. Oh, a little nobody like Peter goes out into the same city that had refused the teachings of Jesus that were not impressed by his life and when he raised a rotting corpse called Lazarus from the dead all they did was to plot how they might kill him. Peter goes into that same city and preaches once this Jesus whom you crucified God has made both Lord and Christ what do we do? You better repent you better decide not to fight him but to receive him as king. And 3,000 of them repented and were baptized and were added to the church. Then a little while later, Peter raises up a lame man who starts running around, shouting and leaping and praising God. Wonderful miracle! But while the kingdom was on earth, Jesus had done that hundreds of times. And even greater miracles, like raising Lazarus, had taken place. But there was no significant response from the city because it was controlled and ruled over by these demonic powers. But once they were cast down, one lame man getting up and leaping and worshipping and praising God that caused 5,000 people to turn to the Lord Amen. Amen. we know from history that within two years a third of the city of Jerusalem was converted we know that many, many, many believed but many of them were still zealous for the law. so as the kingdom comes to a whole new level when it ceases to be an authority upon earth, but it becomes an authority in the heavens. And that's where many, many males many have got to get to. And there is a tremendous battle, and even books are being written by sincere Christians who are tending to unwittingly serve Satan and tell the church it has no right to go into those heavenly places and to rule as priests and kings with their God. But I'm telling you that they do, yeah. and it has. And when we comprehend this and move in that life, we're going to see tremendous breakthrough in our cities. This risen man began a new geology which has never sinned, has never been part of Satan. He's not from earth at all. He never was. He's the Lord from heaven. This risen man is raised and passes through the heavens to his throne, far above all principalities, powers, lordships, dominions, and names, both in heaven and on earth. Not only this age that's in the one to come. You read the you read the superlatives in the beginning of the letter to the Ephesians. He's raising far above, and he lists a whole list of superlatives. He says, "Now I want your eyes to be opened. I want you to see this." Then you then you behave very differently. Amen. In his earthly life, Jesus was born of a woman, was born under the law, and the purpose was to redeem all those who were under the law, that they might receive the adoption as sons. In his risen life, come over to the next page, verse 35. Well, let's go, in his, risen, in his earthly life, I'm sorry, the net, listen to this, we're going to develop this much more fully after lunch. In his earthly life, the natural genealogy of Jesus was that he was a Jew. He came from the tribe of Judah. He was born of the house of Obed and Jesse and David. That's his lineage. You can trace his heritage back to the city of Bethlehem, the city of David. But in his risen life, listen, Jesus is without genealogy. In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 3, as we now are looking at him as the Melchizedek, which he clearly is, we're told he's without father and mother without beginning or end of days, he is the Lord from heaven who has never been, listen to this, has never been naturally a Jew born on this earth. Now Paul carefully makes this distinction. He says, now Jesus, after the flesh, He said we once knew Jesus after the flesh but we know him thus no longer. We know him after the spirit. Who is Jesus after the spirit? He's the Lord from heaven. He's the Melchizedek. He's the great king of glory. He's the ruler of heaven and on earth. Now we're going to deal with this very carefully tomorrow morning and walk in the balances but I want you just to see what the scripture really says. So we have someone here who is not of earthly genealogy at all but he's now the declared, glorious, mighty risen man. And by his resurrection, that glorious day, you and I were in him and part of him when it happened. So what are you and I? We're part of him. It tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 49, and again, it's so weak in the translation. It says, as we have borne the image of the heavenly, and that's actually what's called a present imperative. It's a commandment. It's a military term which says, do it now! (laughs) As we have borne the image of the heavenly, let us, as we have borne the image of the earthly, I'm sorry, let us bear the image of the heavenly. In other words, stop relating yourself even to the earthly Jesus because you've been raised with him and you're now related to the heavenly Jesus. Isn't that incredible? See, if you let the Bible really speak what it's saying, it's absolutely mind-blowing, but it's true. It sounds almost like blasphemy at times. The Apostle Peter has the most incredible things to say. He says, although, he said, we were put to death in the flesh like men, he says, we are to live in the Spirit like God. That's what he says. Peter said that. And I'm sure you can agree with me, Then, when these men were writing these letters, they probably didn't know they were writing Scripture. And if they did, they still were writing out of their experience. So this Galilean fisherman, he's talking about living in the Spirit like God. He said he's given us exceedingly great and precious promises by which we may become the very partakers of the divine nature. He's called us, says Peter, to his own glory and excellence. We're called to sit with him on his throne. That's what it says. And from that throne, as part of the risen Christ, and as part of this heavenly man, and as part of this new creation. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's in the context of verse Checking Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, he says, Although we once knew Christ after the flesh, we don't know him after the flesh anymore. We now see him as the Lord of glory in heaven. He's not Jesus, the Jew from Nazareth. He's now the risen, ascended, glorified one, who's not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of all creation. He's the king of heaven and earth. He's the supreme ruler and the glorious one. He's got all things, everything on his feet. The nations are his. Everything's his. And when you see that, you move to a different level of the kingdom. And when the, Jews, when the first believing Jews in Jerusalem saw that, they moved from earthly authority to heavenly authority, took out the ruling principalities that had ruled over Jerusalem for only God knows how many thousands of years. And the power of the kingdom quickly swept through the city Began to transform it when we see it the same way we're going to have the same result amen well it's time to close let's just close now who's going to pray this in I think Simon you look as if you're the man come on let's pray this in come on let's just soak it I know it's hard to receive I know it takes time to soak in but we've got to let it happen ask God to reveal it to us in burning reality burning clarity
1: could we just all stand up?
0: Yes, let's stand. Let's give him. Back.
1: Lord, there seems like such a paradox going on the inside of us. The inside your very nature, the eternal life is like it's just excited and happy, and yet our mind wars, Lord, from our present teachings and things that end us war against that. But Lord, we declare today the power of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord, that we are coming forth in His resurrection. And Lord, the revelation of that, of sitting in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Lord, that we're not going to know you out the flesh anymore. We're not going to know ourselves out the flesh anymore. We're going to know ourselves as part of this new creation, a new world order that has already begun. Lord, we're not waiting for the new heavens and the earth. Lord, we have entered into the new heavens and the new earth, Lord. We are part of this new order that has already begun. In this new creation, Lord, this new order, the new kingdom that has been set forth, that in Christ, all dominion, all glory, all power, in heaven and earth and Lord we thank you that you're giving us a revelation that we can through the power of this resurrected Lord we can bring this new heaven down this new Jerusalem down upon our cities create a new atmosphere where God sovereignly rules over our city the presence of God is so supreme and Lord we declare we verbally declare in our lives and our families and over our cities that Satan has been dethroned. He no longer rules in our life. He no longer rules in our families. Lord, we want to declare right now for all of us standing here, household salvation. We want to declare the devil cannot have any of our families. He cannot have any of our children. Not only is not any of them not going to hell, Lord, they're not going to miss their destiny. Our families have purpose and our destinies. And Lord, we're going to declare also the devil's not going to have our cities. Lord, not only did you redeem us, redeem mankind, you redeemed the land. And Lord, we declare that the land has been redeemed and it belongs to you. You bought it with the power of your blood. And Lord, the cities that you have planted us in, we're putting our feet. We're making covenant with the land. We declare this land belongs to the Lord. It's been redeemed. It's been purchased back. And righteousness shall reign upon this land. Power will reign upon this land. Peace will reign upon this land. And darkness will no longer inhabit our cities and reign in our cities. And Lord, we declare as you continue to unfold this great strength and great power. And Lord, as we go back to our cities, God, we're going back with a greater revelation, a greater understanding, but not just in our minds, Lord, something that's been quickened and made alive in our spirits. We thank you for it right now. In the power of Jesus. Amen.